Well, good morning, everybody, and again, welcome to Hawaii Kai Church. Uh, it's always so good to see all of you here, uh, to be worshiping and celebrating uh, our life in Christ because of who He is and what He's done for us. Uh, would you please open your Bibles uh, to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 will be our passage of study this morning as well as next week Sunday. Uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be taking uh, a two-week break from our study of Luke uh, as we dig into these 11 verses uh, from the third chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. This week, we'll probably get through only the first uh, few verses, but I will be reading to you all 11 verses this morning in the hopes of giving you a better idea of where we will be going with the overall message. So in the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul's instructions on how we as Christians are to live in a fallen, pagan, secular world. How are we to live as Christians? And before we read our passage, would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, as we uh, have just sung, we pray, God, that you would show us Christ. Lord, there is no other place that we can go to find words of eternal life except to you. And so we go to you this morning, to your word, and we ask that you would help us that you would help us to hear your voice, your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to understand, that you would encourage us, convict our hearts, and lead us into all truth. That Jesus Christ, that his name might be glorified and honored, and that we might, through your holy word, be edified, built up, and changed to the end of our lives, Lord, that you would use them as lights in a very, very dark world, that our lives might beautify and adorn your gospel. Father, we look to what you have for us today with great anticipation, and we thank you for this time, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You know, we live in a very dark and fallen world, don't we? I think we all know it. We all feel it. Uh, Andrew Peterson's popular song, he, Is He Worthy?, repeatedly asks the questions, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? To which the repeated answer is, we do. We do. We do. I don't need to remind anyone of the moral upheaval, the moral chaos, the moral confusion that has permeated our increasingly godless society in recent years. As much as we might wish that we were a Christian country, I think we can all agree now that we are living in a pagan, secular society in which the Christian church is being increasingly marginalized and isolated as a relic of an unenlightened, bygone era. But as difficult as life might be getting for Christians here in America, I believe it pales in comparison to the difficult situation Titus and his congregation were facing on the island of Crete. Titus was left by Paul on the island of Crete to lead, teach, and to set in order the Christian churches that had been planted there. Now keep in mind that the island of Crete was about six times larger than the island of Oahu. And so Titus was given a huge responsibility to establish godly elders within the churches and to stand against a very corrupt culture. And as it was in many of the churches in the first century, false teachers were infiltrating the church in Crete, and Titus had to deal with them wisely and sternly. But it wasn't just the false teachers that Paul and Titus were concerned with. The people of Crete as a whole were of questionable character and morals, and that's just putting it mildly. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells us that Cretans were characterized by a prophet of their own as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul affirmed this epithet. The Cretans in biblical times were immersed in idolatrous and pagan culture, that far exceeded what we experience here in 21st century America, not to mention that it was also a culture of inequality, slavery, and sexual perversion. It was a society governed by abusive tyrants and dictators, for just like Israel, the island of Crete was occupied and governed by Rome. The people were heavily taxed by tax collectors who were often extortionists, who took advantage of the people. Their world was full of violent and murderous terrorists and zealots. Now, while we might be living in a corrupt and evil age, we should never forget that life in biblical times was extremely dark and ugly. But it was in this context of a dark, dark time and culture that Paul gave instructions to Titus on how the Christians were to interact with that pagan culture outside of the church. And just how were we supposed to do this? Paul tells his beloved disciple to teach the church simply this, live like Christians. 
live like those who have been saved by the grace of God to eternal life. The way believers are to interact with and impact a dark, pagan, secular, godless culture is to show them the light of Jesus Christ through the way we live. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be like shining lights in the darkness for the glory of God. But exactly how are we supposed to do this? Well, this is what we want to explore this morning and next week as well. Look again at Titus 3, verses 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul begins by telling Titus to remind them, to remind them of things that were already taught and that they already understood to be true. The sense here is that Titus is to keep on reminding them over and over again. For many, if not most of us, we need constant reminders, especially in matters that make life hard, and therefore we'd, we'd just rather forget them. Like the teenager who constantly needs reminders to pick up his room or take out the garbage, we too need to be reminded of these not-so-easy-to-do things. And so Titus was called to repeatedly and constantly press these truths into their heads. And what was he to remind them of? Look again at verse 1. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Paul is calling the Christians to have a proper attitude of respect for the Roman government on Crete. He is exhorting them to be obedient from the heart, not begrudgingly with feigned deference, but to be ready and eager for every good work. Now imagine, imagine how difficult this command would have been to follow. If we think Obeying a godless secular government is difficult today. Imagine what it must have been like living in an occupied nation in which the ruling authorities had no regard for God or for your personal autonomy or your rights. You had no say in government. There was no voting for the next emperor. If you didn't like it, too bad. And so what is a Christian to do in a situation like that? Well, what does it say here in Titus chapter 3? Submit and obey. This isn't the only place in Scripture that Christians are commanded to submit and to obey their ruling authorities. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 provide further exhortation to do this. Submit and obey. But keep in mind that Paul was not advocating for blind obedience to the Roman government. Christians are to always, always be first and foremost obedient to their highest authority, which is God and his word. And as we read throughout scripture, it is sometimes necessary to reject and disobey earthly rulers in order to obey and follow God. Moses did it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel did it. David did it. Peter and John did it. They disobeyed their human authorities, not for their own gain or glory, but to glorify and obey God. 
But in spite of this, make no mistake about it. God's word is clear. As Christians, we must submit to our rulers and authorities. And our attitude should be one of obedience. To the extent that they do not force us to go against God nor prevent us from obeying him. Brothers and sisters, I know... I know this is not an easy command to follow. It wasn't easy in Paul's day, and it isn't easy in ours, but this is what Christians are called to do. Not only did Paul instruct them to submit and be obedient, he took it one step further by instructing the Christians to be ready for every good work. The word ready carries with it the connotation of standing by, being ready to meet the opportunity, to be prepared In other words, this wasn't just a grin and bear it mentality that would begrudgingly obey and submit because they were being told to do it. Rather, Paul is reminding them to be eager and ready for every good work whenever the need called for it. In a society that was governed by pagan authorities and a culture that was filled with liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, Paul says that we are to live submissive, obedient lives, seeking out every opportunity to do good. Now, why? Why would he do this? Why would he say that? Because this is what Christians do. This is how we live. This is who we are. This is how we glorify our Lord. On top of the societal obligations to government, Paul gets more personal in verse 2. Look again at verse 2, where Paul says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. To speak evil of no one, literally means not to blaspheme other people, not to speak against other people maliciously, whether to their face or behind their backs. Paul knew, and I'm sure we would all agree, how easy it is to talk negatively about other people, especially those for whom, for some reason, we don't like or we don't agree with. Perhaps someone who has slighted us at work, or a person who believes differently than we do, or someone even who cheers for a different sports team. In this regard, it is helpful for us to remember James's warning about the dangers of the tongue, that even though the tongue is a small part of the body, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It has the power to destroy, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. Paul reminds them and us that in spite of the evil society in which we live, Christians are to control their tongues and not to speak evil of anyone. In addition, Paul reminds them to avoid quarreling, which means not disposed to fight quarrel or be contentious. It seems like over the past few years, because of the pandemic, the 2020 election, and all the political and social unrest that has permeated our society, it feels like, and I know this could be my imagination, but it feels like that people in general are more on edge, quicker to get angry, wanting to fight at the slightest provocation. Well, whether that is true in this time or 2,000 years ago, Paul is saying Christians are not to be this way. Rather, Christians are to be gentle, yielding, forbearing, 
reasonable, moderate. In addition, they are to show perfect courtesy to all people. All in all, the picture being painted here is of a humble person who is respectful, meek, and deferential to others. Paul describes this more in Philippians 2 when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important or significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Keep in mind, however, that humility and meekness and putting others before ourselves does not mean that Christians are to be overly timid, living in fear of offending other people. Far from it. Jesus was the epitome of meekness and gentleness, and yet he was unafraid to confront the Pharisees. Do you remember our sermon from last week? He was an invited guest. And yet he pronounced woe upon woe upon woe upon the Pharisees. And all throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus was unafraid to confront evil, to turn over tables in the temple, and to call people to repent of their sinful lives. Still, in order to prevent Christians from either becoming judgmental and self-righteous in their new life in Christ, or from reverting back to their old, rough-around-the-edges way of life, Paul urges Titus to keep reminding his congregations of how Christians ought to live, to be submissive, obedient, non-quarrelsome, gentle, and courteous to all people. In other words, live like a Christian. Are you feeling convicted right now? I know I am. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, God gave me at least three opportunities, three tests, if you will, to see if I understood what I was going to preach about. And I failed all three tests. Brothers and sisters, this is no small task. These are not easy commands to follow. Living like a Christian requires much more than just a kind demeanor or a gentle disposition. We cannot do this apart from the power of the Spirit of God working in and through us. And so basically, Paul is reminding them to live as Spirit-filled believers who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control. How often, how often do we need this reminder ourselves? When we're waiting for service with a large crowd of people in a disorganized line and other people who came after you keep pushing their way to the front. Or when we see crazy drivers disregarding traffic signs because they are so impatient. Or when people cut the drive through line at McDonald's and then honk at you after they almost hit you. Should we be getting angry and curse them or say mean things about them even if those things are in our heads? No. This is when and why we need reminders. And by the way, those are the three tests that I failed. (laughs) And so Paul's reminder to us as Christians is that we need to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And we do so because when a Christian does this, 
whether it's in ancient Crete or here in 21st century America, you are going to stand out. You will be noticed and attention will be drawn to you. So different is this kind of Christian behavior from the darkness all around us that it is not a stretch to say that Paul is calling them to live like lights in the darkness. And they weren't going to do this for their own glory. They were to illuminate Christ through their good, excellent behavior in order that they might show an unbelieving world the life-giving, life-changing power of the gospel. Paul knew that good behavior by the Christians would not only put those who were in opposition to the gospel to shame because they would have nothing evil to say about them. He says this in Titus chapter 2, but he also says in chapter 2 that good, excellent, and moral behavior adorns the gospel. It makes it stand out as even more beautiful. Good behavior will never save anyone. If you've been attending Hawaii Kai Church for any amount of time, you know that you cannot earn your way to heaven through good works. Rather, good, excellent behavior is evidence, evidence of a new life in Christ. Think about this the next time you have the opportunity to show goodness in the face of evil. That every gospel-fueled good work that shows kindness, gentleness, patience, when those good works are rooted in gospel-saturated love, they adorn, they beautify the teachings of Jesus Christ, our Savior, because they show what he has done in your life. This is what Jesus is giving us the opportunity and privilege to do. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that we have this treasure of Jesus Christ, a beautiful treasure within us. Even as we walk around in these earthen vessels, this sinful flesh, we have a treasure within us. Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, and he is giving us the opportunity and the privilege to show an evil, darkened, unbelieving world, do you see this treasure? Do you see my Jesus? Do you see my Lord? Do you see my Savior? Do you see his light? Do you see his grace? Do you see his beauty? That is what we are supposed to do and why we are supposed to do it. For the glory of Jesus Christ. But as you might imagine, this is no easy task for the Cretan Christians, and it isn't any easier for us today. And so, to help his readers respond with godliness, even in difficult situations, Paul makes it a point to remind them and us of a very important fact that we sometimes forget but never should. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here, Paul wants to remind the Cretan Christians that the basis for doing good is that they were once just like their unsaved neighbors. In fact, when Paul uses the term for we ourselves, he is including both himself and Titus, as well as all believers everywhere in his indictment of our previous life. And he does so because he knows 
that remembering our own struggles from the past will motivate us to be more understanding, more gentle, more forgiving, more kind to the unsaved despite their sinful behavior. You used to be just like that. Don't you remember? And so Paul lists several ways in which we were once completely lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. He starts reminding us that we were once foolish, meaning that we lacked spiritual discernment and understanding. The psalmist tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the gospel was once absolute foolishness to us as unbelievers because we, like everyone else, were once perishing in our sins. As a result, since we had no concept of God or his holy law, not only were we fools, we were also disobedient, willfully disregarding God's authority and living our lives as though we were free from all responsibility, loyalty, devotion, or duty to our creator and our king. And as disobedient fools, we were led astray, which means we were deceived, straying away from God and instead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, as we read in Ephesians 2. And because of our foolish, rebellious, straying ways, we lusted after with unfettered glee all the passions and pleasures that our evil heart desired with the inevitable result that we became enslaved to them. And since we were chained to our lustful ways, we could never find true fulfillment in anything or anyone. And so we turned against others, living our days in malice and envy, wanting what other people had and being jealous of other people's good fortune. Now, you can't be this way for very long before other people begin to hate you. And so you, in turn, begin to hate them until ultimately there is a complete and utter breakdown in society, and isn't that exactly what the devil wants? Now, you might be thinking that Paul is being a bit extreme here. As residents of beautiful, genteel Hawaii Kai, you might be thinking, I certainly don't see in my neighborhood the kind of people that Paul is describing here in verse 3. Well, that might be true. But don't be fooled. We should never be so overly impressed by human kindness and goodness to the extent that we forget the true reality of wretched humanity as described by Scripture. Although not everyone will exhibit to the same degree malice, envy, and hate, we should never forget that those qualities exist within the darkened, sinful human heart. Although humanity may behave well and good, constrained as they may be by outside societal and social constraints, inside, at their core, within their hearts, they will always be as sinful as Scripture describes them. Take away the safety nets of law and order and the social constraints of middle-class America and the internal inhibitors of fear and personal shame. Take all of these normal constraints away and then you throw in some kind of a crisis such as a food shortage or a heated political battle or a pandemic and suddenly there is very little that keeps even the most respectable of people from devolving into the evil beasts that the Cretans were known for. 
At our core, human beings are sinful people, and we will always default to our fallen nature when push comes to shove. What Paul is saying here is that we are not basically good people who occasionally sin. We are sinners who are sinful to the core. Right now, if you're in a small group here at Waikai Church, we are reading together through a book called What is the Gospel? And if you're like our group, we just finished reading through chapter 3 entitled Man the Sinner. And in that chapter, the author Greg Gilbert says this, There is a huge difference between understanding yourself to be guilty of sins and knowing yourself to be guilty of sin. Most people have no problem at all admitting they've committed sins, plural, at least so long as they can think about those sins as isolated little mistakes in an otherwise pretty good life, a parking ticket here or there, or an otherwise clean record, on an otherwise clean record. Sins don't shock us much. We know they are there. We see them in ourselves and others every day, and we've gotten pretty used to them. What is shocking to us is when God shows us the sin that runs to the very depths of our hearts, the deep-running deposits of filth and corruption that we never knew existed in us and that we ourselves could never expunge. That's how the Bible talks about the depth and darkness of our sin. It is in us and of us, not just on us. This is so important. It's so important for every Christian to understand and recognize, for if we don't, we will never fully grasp the magnitude and the urgency of why forgiveness, regeneration, and salvation is necessary for every human being. The gospel is not just for the overly, obviously sinful people. It is necessary for all people, even the so-called good people of the world. And I think this is Paul's point here. No matter how good, how clean, how morally superior we may think we currently are, we should never forget that we too were once separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We all once had the same disregard for Christ, the same propensity for sin, the same malice, envy, and hatred. And so Paul calls us to remember this because when we forget our sinful past, we also lose sight of the goodness and loving kindness of God in sacrificing his beloved son to save us from that sin. When we forget our sinful past, we lose sight of the goodness and loving kindness of God. And this is what Paul now reminds Titus of. Look again at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of good works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now we're going to go into more detail and talk about these verses much more next week. But for now, 
I want to point something out to you that I think will be a glorious reminder for most of you, but for others, it may be a revolutionary truth that will change your life forever. Remember, it was when we were at our worst, when there was nothing good in us, nothing lovable about ourselves, nothing worthy of merit, nothing worthy of God's goodness, let alone God's love. That is when... That is precisely when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. God sent his holy, pure, beloved son to earth to save a foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, envious, hateful, and hated people. For God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with two thoughts as we close this morning. Two thoughts that are based on scripture. First, you cannot know, understand, believe, trust in, and have faith in this gospel without being changed without being born again to walk in newness of life. This is the only way that we can understand, Paul, understand Paul's exhortation to live the way he's calling us to live. You have to be a changed person. You can't fake this kind of life. You can't say that you have saving faith in this gospel without being made a new creation in Christ, having been crucified with him, baptized into his death, and raised to new life such that it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. This is what God's word tells us. You cannot be a Christian and not be reborn as a new creation in Christ. True Christianity is not just lip service saying you believe one thing and then living completely opposite. The Bible does not allow for that. And that is God's honest truth. That's the first thought. The second thought is this. Because we are born again believers in Christ, because we have been forgiven and given new life, because we are new creations in Christ, we are to glorify and honor Jesus Christ in the way that we live. Brothers and sisters, we are to live as lights in a dark world. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. Show the unbelieving world the treasure that is within you. Show them Jesus by how you talk, how you act, and how you live. Is it easy? No. Is it necessary? Absolutely. In this way, you will silence the unbeliever. You will adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will shine like lights in a dark, despairing world. We're going to continue this message next week. I hope you will be here to join us. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Father, for everything that is in it, including difficult to believe, difficult to obey passages such as this. And yet, God, I know that for those of us who know you, who love you, 
these words resonate in our hearts as true. We know what we are to do, Lord. We know, God, that we are to live in a certain way so that we might bring glory and honor to your name. And yet how hard it is for us to do that. And so we ask, Father, for your help. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to take this truth and to continue to work in our hearts and to help us, Lord, sanctify us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And may all glory and honor be given to your name. We love you so much, and we thank you and we praise you, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.